When we last checked in on our hero, (laughs) he, she had arrived at the seventh factor of the path, right mindfulness, and was making a camp there, preparing to move on to the heights of the eighth factor, samadhi. And this is the this is the hero's journey. You you've, you remember a while back in the 60s and 70s, Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey. This really is the hero's journey. That's what the spiritual path is. It doesn't have to be dangerous. In fact, I've been spending a lot of time in the last at least 15 years trying to convince people that much of the painful aspects and the dry and dreary aspects of some of the meditation attitudes are not necessary, that there is a juicier and more pleasant path. And because it can be, there are desert kind of ultramarathon schools. And uh, this is more of a pleasant stroll in the park. The Buddha himself, actually, when he settled down to his... Uh, when he, once he found his meditation technique, after renouncing the hard and unnecessary hardships of extreme austerities, it didn't take him very long. And it was based on samadhi. It wasn't based on anything else. It was based on the allowing the mind to free itself from these unnecessary torments and to experience a pleasure which he said to himself was nothing to fear. This uh, entrance into samadhi is a pleasure not to be feared. And out of that, quite naturally, because he couldn't know where he was going, it must have naturally followed, his insights naturally followed from just going into this pleasure not to be feared. That is samadhi. Samadhi is never not pleasurable. It's always exclusively pleasurable, both through the body and through the emotional center. And so mindfulness is the is this voyage between the clear instructions of right effort. More or less, right effort is at the at base camp. There's kind of these signs going, you know, 1,400 miles to Kathmandu and 6,000 miles to New York, and these kind of like directions at the base camp. And then you're you're supposed to look at those directions and find out where you're supposed to be going. And then you engage it, and you engage it through mindfulness, the mindfulness practice. And mindfulness is always referring back to right effort. It's, it's uh, incorporating systematic attempts to remove the hindrances. And it's going to balance your attitude towards your body, towards your uh, sensations, the f- sensations in your body, to the psychological conditions that are arising in the mind 
and and inform you and give you a overarching vision in the last category of four foundations of mindfulness, the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. The right perspective on the body is not either aversive or uh, over-concerned with identity and so forth. It's to pry you away from that and to allow the body to fade into the background as not a thing to be to grip you with concern. So you're finally you're turning it back into what it is, something owned by Mother Nature, property of Mother Nature, not yours, and prone to, of course, uh, various stages of illness, perhaps, and also of death, and but. Uh, with a sense of ease and detachment from that because it's not yours and you're, you're trying to see that vision to remove the, the strange illusion of possession of the body or identification with the body. So that's what body is. And then feelings, you, you can get awfully, awfully identified with feelings. The feeling of being sorry for yourself when you stub your toe And this is uh, strange because it's just a sensation. Why does it evoke sorrow, frustration with life, etc.? It shouldn't. So we're getting these things back into perspective, returning feelings to property of Mother Nature as well, the biological processes of the body. And then the workings of the mind, again, it's an impersonal process. We don't know where it came from or how it really works, but we see the arising of these afflictions or the absence of them. And that's, we get our, catch our attention around that. And then we know what to do with them. Only in the last foundation of mindfulness, we know how to categorize these things and which ones need vigorous effort and energy to prevent and remove, and others require vigorous and careful and uh, kindly and creative effort to maintain and deepen the beautiful ones. The work of art, your life as a work of art, what to discard, what could be done better, striving for more beauty and clarity in your outlook, your vision, and there's nothing more beautiful than truth itself. And you've got to decide what, which truths are we talking about. The truths of the human heart is what we're talking about, not scientific truths. Scientific truths are more or less amusements, and in fact, you know, science, if you look at the history of science, it was the amusement of wealthy eccentrics, usually, or people who had a lot of time in their hand. They undertook these projects because they had the time and the wealth to fiddle with things. And it's, so it's a, it might be an interesting hobby, but it's, it's certainly not a, a great and beautiful truth. Because great and beautiful truths have to do with that which moves the human heart, makes a vision, 
and orient you on the on the path on the on the journey and the journey has to be towards what makes it meaningful is the is the diminishment of unnecessary pain and the replacement of that with profound well-being unshakable well-being in the end and that is something magnificent all the other truths the truths of mathematics or the truths of of carpentry or the truths of science and they're very they're nice i mean especially when they're well done they're they're quite lovely but not they're not magnificent the truths which reveal the integration of the heart the full proper harmony of the emotional structure that's magnificent so when uh, also when plato and socrates are talking about the true and the beautiful the true the beautiful have to do with truths that are of the nature of the heart and it can never be anything but good so goodness truth and beauty just are three aspects of one experience so this is where we're going with this uh, towards samadhi and samadhi is relief before you reach final liberation it's a facsimile of it so you get some nourishment along the path you don't have to just wait in the dry lands until you finally plunge into the oasis pool there's there's plenty of shade and um some uh restoration and and re- relief long before you come to true liberation there is relief and ease and coolness and freedom and ease and contentment all of these things are very well listed and and very systematic it's it's in the um fruits of recluseship uh sutta in the longer length sayings you'll see the fruits of what can you expect when you engage in this path and along the way is this experience of samadhi which is a fruit a reward a beautiful resultant of the process that's certainly not to be ignored there's been a magic trick an incredible magic trick in in buddhist teachings they made the eighth factor of the path disappear right in front of our eyes like how did that happen <laughs> so where did the eighth factor go in history it's being brought back now we're doing a reverse magic trick we're bringing the eighth factor back to the path because it, it was through various kind of um elaborate workings consigned to it was kind of set off as some kind of yoga or a hindu or something like that it's the direct teachings of the buddha there may have, may in fact be some interesting uh reflective exercises that don't necessarily directly involve samadhi but uh it's obviously that the the path is laid out and that samadhi is is featured as the as the the launching pad the last stage of the path and it just gets short treatment
But uh, we are bringing it back and encouraging people to experience it. And it is not because it's right samadhi, it's sama samadhi. And what is sama samadhi means that it's incorporated into the overarching vision of the path. It's not removed as a separate uh, kind of experience that has nothing to do with moving on towards final liberation. As long as it's on the way, it's a, it's a tool and a, to serve the motion towards liberation, then it's right samadhi and uh, nonetheless pleasurable, restorative, transformative. It has a side effect, and the side effect is it changes your attitude to life. It just does. And that's why the Buddha talks about no need to wish for wisdom to arise. Where samadhi is developed, wisdom naturally swells and rises out of that experience. So we're setting the mind up for that process. Samadhi can be induced by a lot of means, and I use the word induced. Uh, quite often there's an attempt to approach it by just staring, you know, just staring into your mind and watching things in a non-judgmental way, but that's not the suggestion. The suggestion is to try to bring these factors into existence, the factors of the first jhana, to encourage them any way you can. The first encouragement is, of course, to free yourself from the hindrances naturally leaves you in a, in a kind of light and joyful way, and that preliminary joy should be deepened if you can deepen it. To rejoice in it, it kind of feeds back on itself. Joy feeds back on itself, and joy becomes more joy and becomes more joy. Just as sorrow becomes more sorrow, becomes more sorrow, or depression becomes more depression, becomes more depression, or fear they all tend to reinforce themselves. Whatever, if you're in a negative structure, it tends to to continue in that direction. If you're in a positive structure, you can just get your your foot in the door of joy. Uh, then it will tend to continue in that direction. And so that's the uh, that's the secret. Slip in the door there, and and then. Push in farther. Ride on it. Feel it. We really want to be swept away into it. So it's an unworldly condition. It's a higher joy than the uh, sensory joys of the world. The Buddha says this many times. This is a superior happiness. It's superior to the pleasures of the senses. So we should ask for, we should expect a lot and ask for a lot. It may be in a different form than you're used to, because quite often we project, a, if we only know of certain sort of course happiness, we project that into that form. But it's just a different form. It's a superior and more refined condition of happiness. It's kind of like if you've just been listening to... Uh, country music and somebody you go to this concert and somebody takes out a fiddle but it turns out it's not a fiddle it's a violin and they play Bach instead of 
Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> You're not expecting it. You imagine, now we're going to hear some fiddle music. <laughs> Let the dance begin. <laughs> but it's different. It's different. It's more refined and complex and involves other aspects of the mind. So this is, uh, this is the, the relationship of, say, jhanic happiness, samadhi, to the normal experiences of the senses, you know, eating the food that you like or seeing a movie or, or even a sunset or something like this. It's different, different quality. These are all beautiful. We, we all want, we all enjoy the, uh, ex- the sensory experiences of the world, and there's nothing wrong with them, except that they have, there's problems involved with them. And that's, the Buddha is trying to solve this problem of the, the shortcomings of sensory happiness. He's trying to at least get you to a stage of more, more refined, sustained kind of happiness. There's a great deal of economy to this as well. You really have to squander quite a bit of time, energy, and money to get the pleasures of the senses. And if you have, even if you come to the edge of samadhi, and by the way, these factors can be maintained, you know, outside of sitting practice. There can be a, a long residue of this, and, a, and a, it can be followed. You can you can walk around in the, in the in the the jhana fact, the first jhana factor, in a light way as you experience life. So, if you want to go into the deep samadhi, then you really need to be sitting down and still and so forth. You can shut your eyes and really go deep. But the remnants of it and the feeling tone of it can be maintained in the day as well. There's a period of history in, uh, in Buddhism where the commentators start to make this very remote and very, very supernormal and very special. And they do themselves a disservice by doing that. They make it they, people give up before they even try it, but it's not necessarily that hard. And earlier in this, in the history, you see people in ordinary life attaining these, and the Buddha confirming that they have attained these, and monks as well, and so forth. But if the pessimistic attitude develops where you can't do this, that's just misinformation. And it tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you make something impossible to do, then it turns out you know you convince people not to do it. So we have to say, well, it's it's good to give it a shot, and not also to enter retreats and practice as a grim experience attempting to be just become indifferent and stoic to pain itself because a lot of retreats are kind of conducted that way they just the advice is just sit through the pain this is not about fun uh sort of indifferent to your reports of i feel great today you know so just practice never mind you know it's just a denial of the of the value of positive experience emotional experience and a kind of a fetish around enduring pain. This is really not 
you don't find this in the mainstream teachings. Certainly, the it can happen that there is pain in the body and you can't get away from it. And at that time, the Buddha talks about trying to injure it as well as you can, and that having cultivated pain, you know, a samadhi, will be the maximum help for for reducing that experience of pain. He's really not interested in anybody experience physical pain unnecessarily. He himself gave it up. It's a side effect of having a body that sometimes you can't get away from it, but he himself, so he says later in life, my back hurts except when I'm in samadhi. And does the Buddha, so he's enlightened, he's fully enlightened. Does he practice meditation still? Yes. Now what does he practice? He goes into seclusion and he tells Ananda, if people ask what I'm doing in there, in that nice little hut, he says, I'm watching my breath. I'm doing anapana. And I'm dwelling in samadhi. And when he's in samadhi, there's no physical pain. So there's no uh, indication that reveling or the, the, the learning process from that. We all know what pain is. We have it even as children. We have, ex, we have excruciating pain, all, all kinds of it. We know what that is. We don't like it. We just have, we have to learn a little bit of a lesson about how hard it is to just always stay in a, in a condition where you have no physical pain. You know, it's, it's just an impossible situation. It comes to you from time to time, but how do you deal with it? when you have to. So the uh, instructions of the Buddha usually is to the monk to just go to find a nice shady place under a tree in a quiet, secluded area and uh, take four or five topics with you that deal with various things that will arise and um, try to move along towards at least the uh, condition of samadhi. And he gives them topics to help them move that way. Helped absorb the mind. And to prevent the little techniques for removing the hindrances. To remove irritability, practice loving kindness. Remove the excessive discursive activity of the mind, practice breath meditation. To remove laziness and sloth and uh, remember the fact that your life is uh, limited and you're not sure how long it will be. That's just a way to get some energy going. You know, How long do I have to live? And this is my life. And what could I possibly, what beautiful experience could I have? That sort of gets you up from a long dozy nap in the afternoon under the tree, you know, sort of like moves you along. And for the monks particularly, uh, a reflection on the nature of the body, just so that they don't waste their monastic life thinking about their old girlfriends. (laughs) And it's such a waste. If you want to be a monk, be a monk. (laughs) You You want a girlfriend... Don't be a monk. (laughs) And then just one uh, reflection 
uh, topic, usually just the anicca, the impermanence of things. That's a, it's most accessible, it's the easiest one. You see it everywhere. Every, the leaves are falling off the trees, the grass is growing, the insects are buzzing around, and they have short lifespans, and the weather's changing, and morning turns into the afternoon, the afternoon turns into evening, and the stars come out. You, you're watching this endless direct evidence of the absolute change that is in everything, including yourself. The evidence, eventually, if you look at it with a serene mind, not with a um, a fearful mind, or not just with an analytical mind, but with a mind that's kind of being purified and made serene, and then you're, you you investigate every now and then you you make yourself aware of the of change and that truth can sink in but only if the mind is in an, a, a receptive state if it's if it's been transformed really by preliminaries because usually this evidence bounces off our heads we don't dwell on it we don't make much of it or even if we talk about it it doesn't really transform us in any way. So we really have to open the mind and make it soft and, and open to new truths to hit us, allow new things to pop up in our minds, new realizations to happen. So that's why it's very important, this, this quality of a serene reflection, this combination of words, the serenity allows a special quality of reflection which really goes deep and changes you. And that's the secret of it. That's why a lot of therapy and so forth is not transformative because it's just the mind is not in a softened condition. It's not in the right condition for transformation. So you really have to work with the emotions and uh, the focus of the mind, you have to really encourage it, bring it in to interest and joy. A joy always rises with interest. You, you can never be interested and not joyful. So it's just, just whether you like it or not, this is a, an interesting and joyful experience. And when you're interested in and having the inevitable joy accompany it, you're very... The Buddha has brought you to the precipice of transformative truth and that's all he can do he says all I can do is get you to the edge to fall over the edge is up to you but I, all I can do is maximize the conditions you know that poem uh, the saying come to the edge he said no we will fall come to the edge he said no, we will fall. They came to the edge, he pushed them, and they flew. <laughs> yeah, pushed. <laughs> and you find out you fly. So the Buddha is getting you to the edge, out of the ordinary false safety. We, we try to stay in the known, just what we know. And we tend to push things out of our mind that might be problematic, but that's 
That's the dangerous place. That's a dangerous place to stay. You have to go over there and meditate and bring you close to the edge. And all you can do is hope you hope you fly off. There's a little BBC video of people, ordinary people being asked to jump off the 10 meter tower at this nice pool. It's very, it's very interesting. <laughs> it's, it's higher than you think. <laughs> it doesn't look so high from the bottom when you get up on the 10 meter. It's just an amazingly long way down. <laughs> can you, can you jump? You know, you see people's minds back and forth. They, they're about to jump and then it changes and about to jump and it changes about to jump and it changes <laughs> so this is the path the last three factors of the path and they need to be well understood this way and that their invitations to joy and ease and the reduction of pain and a refuge, and that's the way they were always taught. And that sometimes some of the instruction we have received might have to be reprocessed. And even how you sit a retreat and how you meditate at home need to be reprocessed in a new form with new words, with new ideas about what this experience is about and where we're going with this. So it's very important to have these positive and beautiful images because the Buddhas in the suttas are full of these gorgeous images. This is all about the overcoming of suffering, the, the problematic nature of life, the distressing nature of life. And not just the mere absence of it, but the presence of the beautiful in the form of the awakening factors. (laughs) 